of Color, STEM Conference, presents High Tech Sunday. On today's episode of High Tech Sunday, our hosts, Dr. Mark Vaughn and Lango Dean, sit down with 2010 Women of Color STEM awardee and CCG Hall of Famer, Dr. Ruthie Lyle, for a conversation on invention innovation and entrepreneurship. Up first is Corning Incorporated's Manager of Technical Talent Pipelining, Dr. Mark Vaughn. Next is Career Communication Group's Senior Technology Editor, Lango D. Finally, our esteemed guest, Dr. Ruthie Lyle. Dr. Lyle is the first African-American woman to earn a doctorate in electrical engineering from New York University's Tandon School of Engineering. Dr. Lyle has distinguished herself as an innovation thought leader. She has earned over 176 issued patents and is believed to have the most inventions for any black woman in the world. Dr. Lyle successfully passed the patent bar and is a registered United States Patent and Trademark Office patent agent with credentials to prosecute patent applications before the US PTO. She is perhaps the first African-American to hold the title of IBM Master Inventor and lead multiple IBM Enterprise Patent Review Boards. Currently, Dr. Lyle is a lead research engineer with USAA Chief Technology Office of Research. She explores emerging technologies and turns ideas into customized and new business solutions. Without further delay, High Tech Sunday, featuring Dr. Mark Vaughn and Lango Dean. Well, thank you so much, Brandon and uh, Dr. Lyle. Welcome to High Tech Sunday. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. It's really exciting to have the opportunity to spend some time with you today. And the topic is one that is near and dear to me as we're talking about patents, uh, innovation, invention, and entrepreneurship. Uh, the introduction that we just heard is mind-boggling. And there's so much that I want to get into uh, as we talk about your journey to this impressive track record. Uh, but I'm going to calm myself down because one of the things that we find to be a gift to those who actually uh, enjoy listening to the podcast is how you got started. And so if you wouldn't mind, let us get a peek behind the curtain as we get our conversation going. Can you talk a little bit about your growing up and how it is that you uh, developed this uh, love for innovation and invention. Absolutely. First, I'd like to start by saying thank you for having me on the show. It's quite a pleasure to be here with you today. So I'm originally from Long Island, New York. My parents uh, had a great impact on me growing up. Um, we came from that middle class, black family. Um, on Long Island, uh, I saw in my parents uh, many things to emulate. The first thing is that they demonstrated taking risks. I didn't know that at the time, but my parents were part of that great migration where African-Americans who were in the Jim Crow South in the 50s and 60s had fewer opportunities for both education, jobs, and so my father joined the Air Force and left the tobacco farms of Tennessee. My mother came to New York as, actually as a sleeping maid. She did that uh, leaving the cotton fields of Georgia. 
and I saw my family over time evolve. My mother actually now is a doctor as well, went back to school. So I got, I grew up in a household where my father had a solid um, state job that he got as a result of being in the military. And it was hard for blacks then to get those kinds of jobs, especially on Long Island, but he secured it. And my mom uh, worked and went to school and that was what I grew up with. So I always was in the presence of people who were striving to be better and to have more. And so thinking about the environment in which you uh, grew up and thinking also about how uh, your parents actually were an influence uh, on your formative years, uh, what would you say uh, was uh, the moment or, or period in your uh, adolescence, your youth, when you realize, wow, I really have a great love for inventing? Was there a spark? Was it something in particular that triggered that? Well, you know, I it just seemed normal. We grew up in a house where my father, as I mentioned, was a farmer. They actually owned their land. There's an area in Tennessee where the Lyles owned all of their land. And my grandfather was a very strict person when it came to finances. Nothing was done on credit. So they did everything on barter. So they bartered skills. They bartered whatever to keep the farm running. And they had a, so this might seem like a long and not related, but they had a tractor and my father was amongst the oldest boys and was responsible to keep the tractor working. He was not sent to mechanic school, but he learned by observing like apprenticeship and he became very good at that. So I grew up in a household where my father was a fixed man. He could fix the plumbing, the electrical, whatever in our house. People brought things to our house. So I saw him like take things apart. I saw him try to fix something, get frustrated, leave it, come back to it. Uh, so that I think all along, I always thought about you could put this and this together to make something and not uh, have to always buy it. I, you know, I remember as a child, we had a family friend. She was, well, she's my parents' friend and she was kind of chunky. And every time she would come over, she would sit in our kitchen chairs and the chair's legs would get weak. So we didn't want to tell her, hey, you're tearing up our chairs. So my <laughs> father actually went in the shop. We had a little shop and um, he built this little bracket. He built brackets to reinforce the chair so that we never had to tell her, hey, you're tearing up our chairs. And so we always did little things like that. And so I saw him make things. We had, you know, vice grip. We had welding materials and things, uh, which he didn't know we actually turned on when he wasn't there. <laughs> but. We, I grew up seeing that I thought it was normal that this is the way men were, that they fix things and repair things. We rarely, very rarely ever, I don't even remember calling a service person to work on anything in our home. And that's the way I grew up. And I, you know, I realized um, also, like I, I also got that sense of, uh, you know, the pleasure in making something that's different and then having someone say, oh, you know, you made that? And you're like, yeah, I made that. So. I think that's that really get, got me on the road, even though I didn't realize it at the time. Very cool. And so what you kind of 
uh, described is, I think, a critical piece uh, for us on high tech uh, conversation. And that is how so often we think about um, our young people as being raised to be consumers and not producers. And uh, with the example of your father, even though uh, you may not have realized it, uh, you were actually being groomed uh, to, with your innovation and your invention mindset to be a producer. Uh, and so if we fast forward a little bit, one of the things that, uh, of course, is extremely uh, laudable as we were listening to your CV uh, is that you're the first African-American woman to earn a doctorate in electrical engineering from uh, NYU's Tandon School of Engineering. People hear about firsts and don't realize sometimes what it takes to be the first. I think about that accomplishment as a trailblazer. When you showed up, it hadn't been done. You had to blaze the trail so that others behind you could see the path and uh, see that it was possible to follow. Can you talk to us about your experience at NYU? Uh, it was polytechnic perhaps at the time, but uh, that experience of being the first uh, to get that doctorate, what were some challenges that you had to overcome and what allowed you to persevere uh, to get to the finish line. Absolutely. So I, you know, the Lord, I'm, and I'm talking about, I'm a Christian. And so I really feel like the Lord had his hand on my life at a very young age. When I was in high school, I, I was selected to be in a pre-engineering program that put me in the presence of other engineers. I thought an engineer was someone who ran a train. I really didn't have <laughs> an idea of what that could be. When I went to Northeastern University, they had a program there called the New, New Prime, Northeastern's Progress in Minorities in Engineering. That was the very first step. Uh, we had a black dean in the engineering school. Now it's pretty powerful. So we had an advocate. We had support. And at the time, there was a, a black physicist who was on loan from IBM to Northeastern University. And he came to work in the New Prime program. And what had traditionally been uh, characteristics of uh, African-American and students of color is that they would get in engineering. They could not get through physics. They would have a very difficult time. So here's this guy. He comes from Mississippi. He starts teaching us about physics. And we not only start doing well, we start dominating. And that, his name is uh, Dr. Daniel Smith. And I'll always, always be grateful to him because coming from the high school I was at, I didn't even have all the classes. I'd never take, taken calculus and things that I needed to be successful. And he brought us up. He spent weekends and nights helping us to come up. And now, then we got to a point, it's like a race. You get to a point and then you're at the top of the hill and then you're like downhill and you're like, you're rolling. And I know for myself, I thought about graduate school when I was in physics four. I think I was, I was in the midterm or the final. And this is a huge lecture room with maybe over 100 students in the room, and I'm sitting down front, right in front of the professor. I finished that exam in 45 minutes. I checked it three times. I had, uh, I was in the top three in the whole uh, group, and it was shocking because when we first started physics, it wasn't like that. But after a while, after really appreciating it and learning, I realized that I could do it. My senior year at Northeastern, uh, Anthony Maddox was the only African-American Professor in, in electrical engineering, and Gilda Barabino was the was in uh, biology or mechanical engineering. 
that was it. Northeastern's a big school. And I was fortunate to be able to do a research project under Dr. Maddox, Professor Maddox, using electromagnetics to kill cancer cells, um, trying to use, use that. And I got an experience of what research might be like. And I know I was saying to myself, and as soon as I finish undergrad, I'm just going to get a job and work. And somewhere near the end, a professor, another professor, uh, Philip Seraphim, said, hey, I think you have a real potential for electromagnetics. I know I liked it. I loved antenna design. I loved wave understanding wave propagation, you know, wave guides, strip, strip type uh, systems that allow signals to propagate fiber optics. I just liked it, and I didn't really know why. And uh, he recommended, you know, have you considered graduate school? And I applied. I applied to three schools, of which um, Polytechnic University was one. And I didn't apply for the PhD. I applied for the master's program. And I got into all the schools. It was Georgia Tech, Stony Brook, and uh, Polytechnic University. But what Poly did, which was different, uh, Professor Bernie Cho, who has now passed away, he was actually my advisor's advisor. Uh, he saw my application telling me later after I'd been at the school and said to my advisor, hey, have you given her a look? And when he reached, when my advisor, Spencer Quo, who I'm forever grateful to, when he uh, reached out to me, he told me, I know you applied for the master's program, but have you considered a PhD? And I said, oh, no, I, you know, I really hadn't. He said, I'm going to uh, invite you down to the school. I was in Boston. They flew me back. Gave me a chance to see the lab, and then the rest is history. He actually became my doctoral thesis advisor, and he was very rigid and very rigorous, and he taught us so much that I'm forever grateful to him for that. And next thing I know, I didn't know at the time when I was in school, I knew there weren't a lot of African Americans, at least in the doctoral program. I would see master's students coming in, especially from industry, but never... Um, you know, PhD students. So most of my colleagues were, you know, Asian and, but it worked. We, we had a great lab and a great community. So when I was actually finishing school, I had no idea that that was the case until I started getting contact externally saying, hey, you know, did you know? And I was like, no. And so I was pretty surprised at that, as was my family. And I'll never forget the look that was on my father's face because he reads the newspaper every day, when uh, Newsday ran it on the second page. And, and you know, we turned the page. He didn't know. I didn't know when it was coming out, but I knew it was coming. I was going to surprise him. And he was just very, very happy. And for me, that that was a special moment. I still remember it fondly. That is such a, a great testimony. Thank you for sharing that. And, and it's really uh, inspiring to hear uh, folks like you and the many other just outstanding uh, individuals that we've had the pleasure of getting to know on High Tech Sunday speak about the importance of their faith, of their uh, spiritual selves as they have been uh, wrestling through uh, challenges, but also achieving uh, at the highest levels in their professions. When you were speaking of uh, your physics uh, challenge uh, and, of course, the the uh, pursuit of that uh, advanced degree in double E, my PhD uh, is in electrical engineering from Georgia Tech. So, so we okay. have some 
uh, our paths uh, have kind of woven. My undergrad is physics, and so uh, you were talking my language uh, as you were sharing uh, that part of your journey. I know that as you have proceeded uh, into your career, uh, and have numerous accolades. We know that you are a Career Communications Group Hall of Famer. You're a Women of Color uh, STEM Award winner. Uh, and it is not lost on us that those accolades are not just given away. They are the result of hard work and accomplishment. Uh, and so you clearly have a drive and a passion. Can you speak to what your passion is? and where it comes from. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, I it's a it, when you read the bio, the first thing it says, gosh, she's accomplished a lot. She's great. But really, I don't see it that way. I'm a very humble person. I mentioned so many names of people who contributed along the way to get where I am today. And I feel like, you know, I have a responsibility or my mission would be to help the next generation see that it's possible to dream big. And when you earn this thing and you get this thing, you don't consume it in yourself only, but you try to help others with it as well. It would be very like in poor taste for me not to say that, and I mentioned that the Lord had his hand on me. He provided people along the way and he provided the ability to keep that tenacity going. You know, it was, it was much prayer, uh, lots of support of my pastors at the time or the ministers in the ministry. Um, lots of support because, as you know, Dr. Vaughn, achieving a PhD in electrical engineering is very daunting. You know, when, when you think about it, it's like the PhD is supposed to be a contribution to the body of knowledge in a particular area. This means you have to know the body of knowledge very well. You have to have all the skill sets, which is math or coding or anything else you need in order to produce the body of work that you're going to do. And whatever you produce, it's supposed to be a new and unique contribution. And that's what a PhD is supposed to be issued for. And, the, and along the way, you learn how to do research. You gain a variety of skills. And so for me, as I approach this middle age time, I'm thinking forward to the next generation. Who's going to come behind me? How are they going to be inspired? I look at my son and I say, you know, he's a young African-American boy. He has so much potential and greatness. And so someone has to actually make the path for the next person. You know, at the time, I believe I was either 11th or 15th in the nation to ever do it. And it's just, you know, it's just, it's, I was inspired by so many people as I hope to inspire other people as well. You know, I, I, I met Dr. Mae Jameson and had an opportunity to meet her. Shirley Jackson, as you know, the first black uh, PhD in physics from MIT. You know, these were like people that I thought a lot of as I was going through the process. That is really, really amazing. As you were talking about, you made a statement. You said uh, that getting a PhD in electrical engineering, my words, is no joke. As you were saying that, <laughs> um, uh, a phrase came to mind. It may not be as appropriate for High Tech Sunday, but I wanted to say, let the church say amen. Amen. <laughs> It's definitely the case that um, I, I don't believe I know anyone who has um, made it through uh, any of the 
whether it's your academic pursuits, your career pursuits. Uh, and again, people have been kind enough to share uh, how their their faith has played a role. I don't think that there's anybody that we've spoken to that hasn't said, you know, had it not been for the Lord on my side, uh, this would not be the same story. Uh, and, and so thank you for that. Uh, let's get down to uh, really something uh, that we know is near and dear to you before I hand off to uh, my co-host. Uh, what is a patent? Uh, it, we, we throw that term around and you have almost 200 of them. But what is it anyway? Oh, OK. Yeah. So a patent is it's, it's intellectual property. So there are three things in intellectual property is trademarks, copyrights, and patents. Patents were originally like introduced so to encourage people to participate in research. Just because just think about it, if a company makes a big uh, investment in research and they come up with something new and someone else comes out and actually starts to do and practice this in the marketplace, then they lose their advantage. And so, you know, this is not a new thought way back when the Constitution was put in place. Um, there's a section that, of the Constitution, I believe it's Article 1, Section 8, that says it's the idea of patentability is to promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to respective writings and discoveries. So what this means is like, a patent is really an intellectual property right. That is the government or the, and the U.S. government has a patent trademark office. There's an international patent and trademark office. Patents are geographical in their scope. But the whole idea is to exclude others from making, using, or offering for sale the invention or the idea. That gives you some, temporarily, some temporary monopoly for this idea to use it. Usually that's 20 years, depending on the type of patent that you protect. A patent is a legal document, and it has all the aspects that would allow it to be functional and used in court to protect that right. When you look at a general patent, you see that it's a, a, a piece of, it's usually recorded on a piece of paper and has sections um, that denote uh, what the patent is about, like a brief abstract, as well as the inventors and the assignee are the owners of the idea. But the main thing that's really important is the claim. And so when you see in, you see in court, like uh, Apple just did something where they stopped um, Fortnite from being able to use an aspect of their, devo their development kit. You see companies like Samsung suing Apple, Apple suing Samsung, because the patent is a, when it's a novel and useful idea, it gives, um, could give potential um, protection in the marketplace or advantage to participate in this thing in the marketplace and be unique. Just think if you introduce something that's new and you alone have it, you have market share as well. And so you kind of just um, uh, segued nicely into the next question uh, that I was going to ask you, and that is, so what? Why is it that a company uh, in particular um, would be interested in actually uh, going after uh, the intellectual property uh, and having it formalized uh, as a recognized patent? Mm -hmm. uh, and you touched on that, but uh, from the business perspective, what is it that you have found uh, that makes it such a huge factor uh, in the business world? 
Yeah, so it is huge because patents give you um, the ability to operate doing some kind of product or service in the market for a period of time where you can control competition unless they come up with something that's more advantageous than what you're offering in the market. So you have a monopoly, but a patent is really an asset as well. Even if I don't take it to market myself, if I protect this idea and someone else wants to take it to market, then they have to come to me as a patent owner and they have to get a right. We have a cross licensing agreement or an assignment. I actually sell this. So it's an asset that can be sold. It can be licensed. And when it's licensed, there are royalties associated with that. You know, I come from IBM that I spent the majority of my career there as a patent powerhouse. They've been the leader in patents for an, a number of years, and they have a very huge patent portfolio. So it gives them the ability to do things like a cross license, which people pay to have that, to, to have those licenses, those patents. It also gives them freedom of action if someone, if you're operating in a space and someone comes and tries to shut down your operation because they believe that you're infringing a patent they own, it's really good to have something in your arsenal that, that you can say, hey, maybe you're infringing me too, and we can come to the table and have a cross-license agreement. So it gives you freedom of action as well as potential market share as well as even if you don't you never have a product line you never have a supply chain you don't have to have any of that to make money on a patent or you can you can license that patent and you can license it to more than one person it depends on how the agreement is written you know it can license it for the u.s here to this particular entity to europe to this particular entity and so it has a lot of value in that regard. It is really an asset, and companies are thinking about that today as corporate assets. You're listening to High Tech Sunday, featuring Dr. Mark Vaughn, Lango Dean, and our special guest, 2010 Women of Color STEM awardee and CCG Hall of Famer, Dr. Ruthie Lyle. This week's episode is brought to you by the 2020 Women of Color STEM Conference. And now, a word from our sponsor. From waves of change come oceans of opportunities. This has always been our Women of Color STEM Conference message and mission. Now more than ever, we are expanding our rich history and track record of hosting live streamed award shows and interviews, virtual job fairs, learning and networking experiences as we reset to rise at our 2020 Women of Color Virtual STEM Conference. October 8th through the 10th, the world is counting on us. Come ride the waves of change as you explore our limitless oceans of opportunities that can enrich, inspire, connect, and support your continued professional and personal growth that have always been the hallmarks of our women-driven conference. Together, we can help our nation's industries, government, academia, and the military reset, reinvent, and re-energize. You belong here within our trusted community. Ride the waves of change as we reset to rise. The world is counting on us.
begin. This episode of High Tech Sunday is brought to you by the 2020 Women of Color STEM Conference. Now, back to the show. And if you think about like just recently, I went back to business school and to learn more about technology commercialization. I had a great concept on developing ideas, I knew patentability, but how do you take this to market? And so when you find these startups, you see that having patents is a very important thing when you're trying to get funding because it adds to the strength of your ability to have exclusivity in this particular space. So when you look at you know, VCs who are funding new, new technologies, new companies that are coming out, they often ask, like, do you have a patent asset? It's an asset you can borrow against it. You can do a lot of things with against it. Um, and that's not to say everything should be patented because there's a cost to patenting. Not, and not exclusive of the cost to work with the patent agency, if it's the USPTO, but also all of the people that are involved, which are their patent attorneys and all that, you have to pay them. There's you know, once the patent is issued, there are maintenance fees that come after it. So you have to have a strategy about how do you maintain your portfolio that makes sense given the current market conditions. So it, not everything should be patented, but even um, the value to business cannot be, you know, cannot be understated. That was a great tutorial. Thank you so much. You sound like you might be a, a patent agent. Um, <laughs> um, I am. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so, uh, really quickly, uh, one question for fun, and then I'm going to uh, turn it over to Lango Dean. Um, of all of your patents, are there any, uh, maybe the top three, uh, what, what would, you, would, would you say are your, your top three favorites? Can you, can you uh, speak to that? Are there some that stand out for you? Well, I don't know if I have a top three favorites, but I can say those that, like, came about associated with life events. Mm. So uh, for me, like the one patent that, that jumps to mind all the time I'm asked this question is uh, when my husband and I, we were getting ready to get married and he was in graduate school. He parked his car and someone drove past his house and uh, side swiped it. And so like a week before the wedding, we want to use that car, you know, to uh, go on honeymoon. We didn't, he was in graduate school, you're we going close. And, you know, I thought about it. I was like, you know, the, the, the fact that people can hit cars and drive away, that's a problem. And so I started thinking, you know, I knew, so tying this problem with what I'm learning in emerging technologies at that time, People were saying Wi-Fi is going to be ubiquitous. It was, we weren't quite there yet, but that's what, what the literature was saying. So I came up with this idea of like, why couldn't the car have sensors on it that at impact there's an exchange of information? Like the cars have profiles that you can exchange information between the two cars. And it's done in a way that's built in with the OEM. So it's not something that the user is per se able to control so they can't turn it off. And what if this information in, in cloud was new then could be pushed up to the cloud through this ubiqu ubiquitous wireless connectivity. And this information could be registered so that police officers and you know officials to actually have it. They'd have the timestamp, the GPS location, this travel, how the car was traveling, where the cars were positioned. 
they have most of the information. You can actually generate the report that if you had to go to court, you'd have it. So that sticks out to me because that was related to our right before we got married. And then, you know, another little idea we thought about was on our first anniversary driving to the beach. And it seemed like these are car ideas, but, you know, he was driving. Let him drive because I don't want to drive. And, and you know, my, my phone is ringing. I said, you know, I'm so we're trying to get away for this, like, one little bit of time to celebrate our anniversary. Wouldn't it be cool if I had a way that I could uh, control the number of calls that are coming into me, but at the same time not lose the call information? So on the back of the envelope while he's driving, and I'm eating my chips and, and drinking. We come up with this idea of being able to generate like a, a, a screensaver slideshow that's made up of the contact uh, images. And this is back in 2005 or 2000 and, yeah, 2005 or six. You, you, so you'd have this screen um, show that's dynamically generated based on incoming calls, pulling the contact the image or information available about that number that's calling in. So I would see a picture of my mom, see a picture of my boss and things like that. And then I would have like a um, animation or a, um, a UI thing. It could be a pop-up. It could be a, a like a, like a glow around it to give me priority. So red would be hot. Yellow would be, you know, and green would be cool. So I could actually see if I needed to prioritize and call people back or if the calls could actually wait. So that's another idea that came just as a, as a, a response to life events. Um, and then the last one is when I was uh, in a job, in a job at IBM, I was working as a, um, an architect and we were building out a data center in Japan. And that's right when that uh, Japan had that tsunami and the bad uh, earthquake and we were still trying to build we we're trying to, to deliver it on on time and i had teams in japan and teams in china and i was meeting with these people and one thing you find in business that really helps is being able to be a strong and very clear communicator and so if you talk to someone they might not use the same language and so I came up with this idea. Instant messaging was really hot. SMS texting was new. People were talking about texting. And I thought, like, wouldn't it be cool that if I was communicating, say, with someone from England and I said, good morning, it, the text, when I typed it in the IEM, that would underline, be associated with a database repository that defined that term and even potentially replace that term. So it might say on their side, top of the morning, even though I wrote good morning on my side. If that was an agreed rule, that that was a fair one-to-one, -one, then I can make that substitution. And so when you start looking about, you start thinking about the world being flat and people being, me having the need to communicate and to understand how to, what's the right term to use. I think I was looking at an event uh, on diversity and someone said well how do black people like to be called african-american black you know what so what if we had like a solution at least when you're communicating electronically that could substitute in the right term and so that's another one dr lyle this is all fascinating i'm telling you uh and and you brought it down to earth uh, a lot of those inventions that you spoke of were born out of real life 
stuff. You, wouldn't it be nice if I could help make this process or this experience better? Uh, I know from the corporate standpoint that we view patents and intellectual property as what I call the currency of technology. And so, again, uh, really fascinating training and tutorial that you blessed us with. And so we're going to dig a little deeper and actually uh, get into more of what the patent process looks like and even how young people can actually start to think about being inventors themselves. And for that part of the conversation, it's my pleasure to hand it over to Lango Dean. Hey, Lango. Hi, Dr. Vaughn. Thank you so much. Welcome again, Dr. Lyle. It's so nice to have you here. You know, as I was listening to the conversation between you and Dr. Vaughn, um, I was reminded of a talk that um, you mentioned, Dr. Barabino, um, and the name of her talk last year about this time was A Counter-Narrative from a Woman of Color in STEM. And that's exactly what you've just done uh, over the past half hour. You've just given a powerful, powerful counter-narrative um, from a woman of color in STEM. Um, I also go back to the conversation uh, with Dr. Vaughn, and you mentioned you going way back to the Constitution and what's embedded in the Constitution, this freedom of action. And I think of people like um, Madam C.J. Walker. I think of people like Elijah McCoy. I think of people like Garrett Morgan. And that's in way back in the past. And then um, more modern day inventors are like the aerospace engineer uh, for NASA who invented the, uh, the water gun, the super soaker. Uh, um, Lonnie Johnson, I think of him as well. And, and Marion Croak, I think of her, who has uh, quite a lot of patents. And you also mentioned that you grew up fixing things. You had a pleasure in making things. And, um, and you also talked about this responsibility to the next generation because you were mentored and coached by people like you mentioned, Dr. Daniel Smith, Anthony Maddox. Uh, and, and you mentioned the, the inspiration that you got from people like Mae Jemison, the first black woman in space, Dr. Shirley Jackson, Jackson, who's the first woman to ever win the Black Engineer of the Year Award. So. Thinking of all those things and coming back to what you, you know, this response to life events and this necessity, which is the mother of invention, like, you know, why don't, why doesn't a car have sensors? You know, why can't I have a screensaver slideshow that show me people who are calling or, you know, that instant messaging feature that converts American English to British English and, and, and vice versa. What would you say to young people now? What would be your message to them? How can they get started? Because you got to start somewhere. So how can they get started? So my message first would be like to to try to help to explain like the process, like what what it is and why is it important. And I just want to use an example. So you you when in the opening statement you mentioned several uh, African or African American inventors who were noteworthy in Often I think about so many people who at the time in American history were not considered people, they could not be listed as an invention. I think about all the ideas that were not lost or stolen as a as a result of that. So I want I would want young people to know, both black and white, that ideas generally come from everyone. These are 
there's not one set group of people who have the, you know, the market on it. It's available and people who are observing, people who are questioning, listen, very sensitive to problems, people who take their personal uh, experiences and couple that with things that they're learning in other areas. So laterally thinking about things and being flexible beyond today. There's a game we play uh, It's called what if. What if I could do this and what if I could do that and what might it, uh, what might it enable? And uh, just knowing, for example, like I want to mention this one patent. It's not my patent. It's Mary Beatrice Davidson. She's often called the forgotten black, you know, black woman inventor because she created something that was very needed. In 1954, she was issued a patent for menstrual pads or sanitary napkins. And it might have seemed small then, but think about all of the how our culture has changed where women went from being at home to being in the workplace. And so here she has this idea and I, when I read her story, I don't get the feeling that she actually was able to to make money from her idea. You know, I don't think she, it was fully realized for whatever reason, but it's just to show she's a woman. She experiences this, so she came up with a solution. Her patent, by the way, is patent number 2745406. You can look it up on Google Patents just to see. But when you look at the market today, the it was a $19.5 billion market in 2017 and is expected to continue to grow. Women are not at home, they're in the workplace. And it was a foundation for many other types of solutions to that particular need that are in the market today. Uh, when, you, when you think about it that way, to get started is to be observant, to be to, to look around and to understand what has already been done and what's possible. Now with the, with the internet, I mentioned googlepatents.com. That's a great, um, or Google Patents. It might be patents.google.com, but it's a great free resource. So you can type in anything. You can go to that website and type in basketball hoops and see what comes back because there are patents that people have made on on basketball hoops, different components of it. You can go to that site if uh, sports is not your thing and you can type in hairs like a hair product, you know, like what hair product or, or what what things have been created in that space. And so you can learn and it, I, it's not easy to read a patent. You probably want to just read the abstract and the introduction to get a feeling. But that'll be the first step to see the types of things that people are pursuing uh, patents on. And then there are so many programs like I see, I wish um, Black Girls Code would consider Black um, black Boys and Girls Code because it, that may be a first step to actually trying to build out some things. But you can start with using the available tools online. YouTube has a great source. And if you think you have a good idea, the first thing I would say is document it, like write it down to the best of your ability. Don't make a public disclosure, mean, meaning don't present it in school or present it as part of a program. If you really think you have something, I know some law schools offer a law clinic that you can get advice from a, a patent attorney or a patent agent uh, to see the viability of the idea. But uh, 
it, there's no age restriction, there's no color restriction, and there's no gender restriction to coming up with great ideas. So I would tell young people to be, you know, aware and, and start learning more about it. That's wonderful. So the tips again, be aware, be observant, look around, understand what's already being done, and then understand what's possible, document it, um, don't put it out there, um, you know, before you're actually sure. Use available tools and get advice from the right people. I, I'm going to press you a little bit now. What else can young people do? If, you know, if they're in that mode where they are young innovators, they're thinking of inventing something, they've grown up like you fixing things, and they have a pleasure in making things, what else can they do to take that next step to what is technology commercialization? Well, they can uh, try to build out a minimal viable product or a very simple instance of like the idea that they have. They can also test the market. Like um, they might put together something and partner with a local university or business school to, to figure out how to take it beyond this initial phase, this initial kind of testing. Uh, if it's a like an app or something like that, that's a very straightforward path. They learn how to code. They develop the user interface. They don't even have to, to code it all themselves. They have to just have the idea enough to, to hire a front and a back end developer, put together a product and put it in the Apple store, put it in the Google store, but put it out in the market and test it, see if people will buy and pursue it. I'd encourage them to start in something that's small and measurable and then to move up as they can. Uh, to a more advanced product to see it staged step by step. Now, the one other thing that they might be able to do is in several cities, there are a lot of uh, places for startups. In, uh, um, in Durham, we have what's called the underground, which is a, a place where startup folks uh, set up shop and they work on these startups and in the process of doing it in one space together, they uh, develop relationships with other people that they can learn from. Um, Google certifies these uh, locations. M many universities have them, like a startup area or incubator, you know, that they could actually go and check out and visit. If they are students of color and it's an engineering idea, we recommend that they try to connect with the local chapter of the National Society of Black Engineers at that university because there may be a student that could get them access to the incubator or that can help mentor them. If it's just a pure business problem, and I would encourage them to try to reach out to the Black MBA organization who have, I think both of these groups have support structures for high school students. Uh, and, and even middle school students who might have interest. I am so pleased about, you know, the, the shout out that you gave to organ organizations like NSBE, uh, the Black MBA, and HBCUs, because a lot of them now have maker spaces, um, mm -hmm. you know, where people can go. And, and you're also hearing about a lot of startups that are coming out of HBCUs, um, which puts me in mind of, you know, VCs, I know you have a lot of um, black uh, 
uh, companies now um, that are sort of like becoming like, you know, uh, angel, uh, uh, I forgot the word now. Um, what would you say in terms of the support that people can tap into when it comes into that? Because you're always reading about, you know, it seems like everybody else, every other group <laughs> gets access to, to you know, uh, angel funding. and. Um, not so much for the black community. It's a little more difficult. So what would you say in terms of how uh, the black MBA uh, organization can give more support, NSBE can give more support, and HBCUs with makerspaces can give more support? Well, it is true that it's, it's generally more difficult um, for people of color to get uh, funding for technical startup. That's I think there was actually a program aired about that in focusing on Silicon Valley and the low number of people who are actually able to give funding. But there are other avenues. There is a, and I think they, they specifically, I don't think they will work with um, high school, but they will work with college. There is an organization in Atlanta called the General Partners in ventures, Valor Ventures, and they specifically focus on people of color in technology. They're looking for those folks. They have the Startup Runway Foundation that they use to support that effort. Also, if people have military time, uh, there is a, uh, um, I can't think of the name of the, it's a military organization that provide vet, I think it's VetNet, uh, but they provide funding for military veterans who are trying to do startups. And they, uh, they're they located in multiple cities and you can go to events. They have pitch contests where you can pitch and then the companies come to these events and seek to, to find uh, products and services that they can invest in. And then there are, there are smaller things like the uh, Mocha Moms, which is an organization of black professional women who took time out to have their children. And they have an angel fund. I've been um, tracking that and they, they provide small investment. You know, the thing to understand when you're trying to take something to market is to understand, like, do you really want to run this company? for the long duration? Are you really looking for an exit strategy? Are you trying to build it to the point that you could exit and sell it? And so you really need a mentor to, to get a better understanding of that. That will help you as you make choices for your funding because you don't want to give away so much of the business that you don't have anything to actually own. Uh, there's all different kinds of things from preferred um, convertible stock. There's a lot of different things that go into making sure when you accept funding, it's the right time and it's at the right amount that goes in concert with your vision for the for the business that you want to bring forward. That's wonderful. Um, my last question before I, I turn it back to Dr. Vaughn, and you've mentioned a lot of groups, and are there any other groups that you are part of that are helping to encourage uh, young people of color uh, innovators and attach that question, I'm going to piggyback on it. How do you think industry leaders can help more to prepare and encourage young innovators? So I think industry can encourage in the technical innovation 
by treating the current pipeline well. People who, you know, no one wants to follow in a career path where, you know, it's known that women in technology fields get to about the childbearing age and they go do something else. A lot of women, because it's very difficult to have career growth. And so I would think that if you would treat what's in the pipeline well, that alone would be the word of mouth to kind of be encouragement to the next generation. Um, yeah, I think that that it seems like a small thing, but it is significant. There are lots of organizations that are really trying to help young people, particular people of color, to learn technology. I saw uh, Apple, Microsoft, they're releasing online content. There's so much available on Co uh, Coursera and Udemy, and some of these are even free uh, opportunities to learn. And then when I'm, you know, one thing about distant learning that I think of for young people that they may not have considered is if you're going to be a distant learner, that means if you, you can take classes from anywhere, you can be more creative to look at course offerings, you know, like North Carolina is a dual enrollment state, which means you can take university classes in high school and not have to pay the cost of the university class if you have an agreement with your school. This is an excellent time to try a class from Oxford or try a class from someplace else. Even if you're in the university environment, I mean, why not take a class from some school that you would not have been able to do in the past, try to work something out. There's always opportunities for unique experiences. That's wonderful. And you know, a couple of weeks ago, we had Jim Pagan on, on the show, and he mentioned that during this time, you know, when, you know, a lot of us are stuck at home, you can use this time to take courses on Udemy and Coursera. So we, we did have that conversation. So I'm glad that you mentioned that and you amplified on that information as well. Thank you so much. It's been really great and fascinating conversation. At this point, I'm going to step back and, and hand back to Dr. Vaughn. Dr. Vaughn? Thanks, Lango. And, and again, Dr. Lyle, thank you so much. This has been absolutely a mission critical conversation. Every time we have a podcast, I think I say, this has been the best yet. And then the next one happens. Uh, so they've all been great, but you have made uh, what is often a a uh, really high and lofty, intangible kind of a topic like uh, patent and intellectual property uh, accessible. And I think that it's inspired folks to rethink how they approach and connect with invention, innovation, and entrepreneurship. So thank you, thank you, thank you uh, for yeah. sharing your journey, yeah. sharing your experience, and sharing your passion because it is crystal clear. Uh, and we look forward to continuing to hear more more about your journey. With that, I am going to hand things back over to Brandon Newby for our closing. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of High Tech Sunday. Career Communications Group's High Tech Sunday looks at professional development and technology through the lens of spiritual philosophies. In a time when digital information is more critical than ever, this weekly program is produced by and for CCG's community of alumni and professionals in science, technology, engineering, and math fields. The community runs from national thought leaders to aspiring students 
and this weekly series aims to bring a concentrated discussion around technological advancements and achievements based on universal moral principles. The one-hour podcast will be streamed every Sunday. The podcast can be accessed through the Bay of Facebook page, Women of Color Facebook page, and CCG YouTube page, in addition to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. Dr. Ruthie Lyle is also available for speaking engagements. To book her for your next event, please contact rlylecannon at gmail.com. Please join us next time.